Hello and welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Mabel Romero, Associate Professor of Law at Northern Illinois University College of Law. This is the third and last part of a series of very special Ipsy Dixit episodes produced in partnership with the University of Chicago Law Review Online and the Academy for Justice at Arizona State University, looking at COVID-19 and criminal justice. This symposium of essays was organized by the Academy for Justice. It was hosted by the University of Chicago Law Review Online, so go and check them out. Give them a read. In this part three of the series, looking at COVID in the courts, I sat down and chatted with Denise Araturk and William Crozier about the piece they author with Brandon Garrett, Virtual Criminal Courts, and Pam Metzger and Greg Gugamos about their piece, COVID-19 and the Ruralization of U.S. Criminal Court Systems. Denise Araturk is a researcher at the Duke Law Center for Science and Justice and the Duke Moral Attitudes and Decision-Making Lab. And William Crozier is a research director at Duke Center for Science and Justice. Pam Metzger is the inaugural director of the Decent Criminal Justice Reform Center at SMU Dedman School of Law, and of course, a professor of law there as well. Greg Guggenmos is a consulting statistician with the Decent Center, so I hope you enjoy our discussion. Will and Denise, we've got this great paper um, that you have um, co-authored with Brandon Garrett, and I'm really excited to talk with you about virtual criminal courts today. And I wanted to start with talking, um, posing a question to Will, um, you know, specifically. And I was really excited to read this paper because, you know, I teach criminal adjudication, and we talk about speedy trial in that class, and we talk about circumstances under which it's really hard, if not totally impossible, for defendants to avail themselves of speedy trial rights. Um, we've talked about, you know, Hurricane Katrina, other natural disasters, um, you know, earthquakes, the Rodney King riots and everything. Um, well, that's not a natural disaster, but, you know, just something out of the court's control or out of a prosecutor's control or something like that. And I'll be honest, I never really envisioned getting to getting to teach or practice or anything like that in a, in a situation where we're dealing with this, this sort of disaster on this large scale as we have with the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, but now we do, we're doing it now. All of us are doing it now and trying to manage the best that we can. And we have a number of different technologies now, at least, you know, in, in this setting that we didn't, you know, a few decades ago or what have you, that we can try to use to mitigate sort of the effects of, um, you know, natural disasters or um, not being able to meet in person and everything. So can you discuss just real quickly, well, not too quickly, but um, some of the implications of virtual hearings and doing court remotely when it comes to some of these criminal procedure rights that a number of us, you know, talk about um, in our classes and a lot of practitioners out there are trying to wrestle with right now. Yeah, I think it's kind of um, maybe kind of funny, maybe in a little bit of a way that, you know, as uh, COVID's kind of unfolded and basically, um, you know, almost every area of our life has now changed um, to kind of adjust to being online in some way, right? So like, you know, a lot more people working from home, people are able to go to classes at home, you can order groceries on home, uh, you know, order groceries from home and have it delivered right to your house. Um, But there are some constitutional protections that I think make uh, completely virtual trials um, uh, probably not feasible to actually do. Um, so, you know, like with the Sixth Amendment, for example, right, we have uh, concerns over the Confrontation Clause. So uh, whether or not it would satisfy um, the Confrontation Clause to have uh, a defendant face all of the uh, people involved in their trial um, via video um, is something that doesn't seem like it would, uh, would, would meet that standard. Mm-hmm. Um, another concern um, has to do with the adequate representation um, at trial, right? So uh, there's some evidence that um, people who are represented, uh, represented uh, completely remotely might have uh, worse representation or worse defense representation. Um, I, I think just kind of as a result of 
being in an environment where it's a little bit harder to communicate, right? I mean, um, you know, like on the, on the kind of the surface level with things like internet connectivity issues um, or, you know, making sure that you're not talking over another person, those sorts of things can uh, very likely hamper that sort of um, uh, adequate representation. Um, but another really big concern is whether or not um, defendants can, uh, can communicate with their lawyers um, in a way that's uh, you know, protected by the constitution. And, um, you know, you, it seems really unlikely that a uh, defendant would want to, you know, have an open, open to everyone Zoom chat, right, with their, with their defense attorney in the middle of a trial or something. Um, but as anyone who's used Zoom, for example, knows is that, you know, if you download that chat, then even the private stuff can show up um, in what you're downloading. Um, so, you know, on its uh, kind of the way things are going now, um, it seems like there's some, some really serious Sixth Amendment considerations that I think uh, completely virtual courts wouldn't be able to address. Um, whether or not there's, you know, technology advancement that could help with that um, is kind of an open-ended question, maybe like a secure chat platform, for example. Um, but I don't think that that would necessarily solve all the issues. Um, and then I think that there's also some concerns uh, kind of beyond the Sixth Amendment that apply to how uh, trials are done in general. Um, so uh, things like, uh, you know, whether or not, say, a Zoom jury deliberation would satisfy, uh, you know, the the right to a jury um, for, for trial. Um, outside of the trials, you know, there's questions about uh, how virtual trials or the pandemic in general might change how normal cases are processed. Um, so for example, um, uh, Valina, you brought up earlier, I think or previously had mentioned, um, you know, there might be more pressure for uh, plea bargains to be done um, for defendants to, to accept a plea. And I think that that's something um, you know, beyond the trials, but having to do with hearings um, or having to do with, uh, you know, just kind of the, all the stuff that happens before the trial. Um, if you're shifting that online or if people are trying to maybe avoid being held pre-trial in jail, or even if they're out of jail, uh, you know, trying to get the case wrapped up as quickly as possible. So that's not looming over them, um, particularly in a pandemic. Um, I think that while the virtual options may seem uh, really enticing and really possible, I think that there's some, some uh, serious, you know, kind of constitutional and due process reasons to um, pause and uh, make sure that things are still being conducted fairly. Great. So a few days ago, I was, you know, scrolling through Twitter, like sort of doom scrolling, like I usually do during these pandemic days. And I saw a judge on Twitter getting really excited about um, this video that she shared from her local news about a police officer who is carrying around a laptop to, um, you know, a bunch of unhoused people, allowing for court appearances to happen remotely. And she was really excited because it's like, oh, they can clear up all these warrants and they don't have to deal with failure to appear or anything like that. And, um, you know, it, it struck me as a little bit troubling, frankly, and really strange that the judge would be doing this um, publicly on Twitter. Um, but I'm wondering, Denise, do you see any potential benefits um, with regard to access to courts with the use of virtual hearings at all? Or does this all seem to presume access to this technology in the first place? Yeah, thank you so much for that question. Um, I will start talking about some of the concerns and then hopefully offer some um, positive remarks about potential benefits as well. Access is a critical concern um, that is raised by virtual courts and um, likely not all of these concerns can be addressed by cops who are carrying around laptops. Um, In the US and around the globe, there's a deep digital divide between individuals who can and cannot easily access and use technology. um, And the implications of this divide have become especially dire during the pandemic. Um, And we know that this divide is shaped by economic, educational and social inequalities 
So virtual court innovation could definitely exacerbate existing class and race inequalities that already exist in our justice system. Um, for instance, an estimated, we point, out, we point out in the paper that an estimated 14 million Americans lack usable internet access and over 25 million lack reliable high-speed access. Um, and with the pandemic leading to increased unemployment and evictions, those numbers um, will likely grow further. And in the virtual courtroom where people um, can be judged on a whole host of um, factors, including their internet connection, this divide can disproportionately benefit defendants and law firms with high digital literacy or access to high quality technology. Um, beyond access to the technology, like I said, the literacy component will likely be critical in the virtual room. Um, for those of us who have become exceedingly familiar with virtual meetings during the pandemic, the virtual courtroom might not be too difficult to navigate, but for somebody who doesn't use this technology regularly, the setting might be intimidating, especially if appropriate accommodations aren't made. Um, news reports already suggest that defendants are less able to express themselves or be heard during a virtual trial, um, or that they might be more confused by the proceedings. And these concerns, again, are unlikely to be addressed just by giving someone a tablet or a laptop. Um, and there's a final kind of digital divide to consider, too, between big law firms who have the financial and technical means to collect, link, analyze big data, or provide support to their clients and public defenders who might not have those resources. Um, so in short, the digital divide should make us skeptical of the claim that virtual appearances can improve access um, to rural or urban indigent defendants in particular. Um, but like you said, it's not all doom and gloom. There are uh, potential ways that virtual hearings could improve access. Traveling to the courtroom can be a large burden on people. Participants may need to take a lot of time off work, find childcare, obtain public transportation, um, and a virtual appearance would eliminate these costs and might overall be less intimidating than an in-court appearance. Um, this in turn could lead to lower instances of failure to appear in court, uh, which we know have quite detrimental collateral consequences. Um, so I think overall courts will need to consider both the benefits and burdens that the virtual courtroom creates in terms of access and make sure to provide accommodations for indigent defendants in particular. Um, these accommodations would be perhaps providing tablets and internet connections, um, but also trainings on how to use the technology. Um, and they would be similar to existing accommodations um, in in-person settings, such as for disabled um, defendants or to, to address language barriers. So I think um, we're just going to need to think and make provide accommodations that are not just limited to um, giving people a computer or a tablet. Yeah, it's funny how sometimes it seems like everyone assumes like, oh, I just give you a computer or a tablet and magically you'll know how to use the system and everything. So thank you so much for highlighting maybe some of the difficulties that people who might not feel comfortable with this technology might have. Um, Will, um, we heard Denise just talking about how it, it might feel more difficult for defendants even to um, feel comfortable speaking to, you know, a, a group of people um, or a judge or anything like that using um, remote technologies and everything, using the internet and, you know, perhaps even computers or tablets that they might not be familiar with. Um, so that's a sort of interesting change in behavior that it sounds like has been documented. Um, are there other co concerns with regard to changes in behavior from judges or prosecutors or jurors when it comes to moving everything online. Yeah, so fortunately, um, I think that there is um, some amount of kind of, you know, behavioral science 
um, looking at how people interact with uh, each other in the courtroom and, you know, like what sort of judgments are relevant um, or uh, in some cases not relevant to determining the case of a, uh, the outcome of a trial. Um, kind of unfortunately, very little of this research, I think, specifically focuses on the instances that we're in now, uh, right, which is the possibility that everything could be virtual, or people could be sick, um, or people might be wearing face masks, or those sorts of things. Um, but we can find, I think, a little bit of guidance from um, social sciences and behavioral sciences um, about how uh, moving at least elements to be uh, remote or virtual could, could affect behavior. Um, I think maybe the first one that comes to a lot of people's minds initially is something like uh, trying to assess credibility, right? Or whether or not somebody's uh, lying on the stand, right? I mean, um, I think that there's something kind of sacred about the idea that if you're in the room with somebody and you're face to face with them, that you can rely on behavioral cues and, uh, you know, where they're looking and their tone of voice and all of these sorts of factors to determine whether or not um, they're telling the truth. Uh, however, a lot of research actually shows us that people aren't exactly the best at that. Um, so in a, a meta-analysis that reviewed over 200 papers on deception detection, um, there aren't very many good cues to, to detecting deception, right? The things like you look to their left because they're trying to make up a lie or something like that's not really, uh, based in, in empirical evidence at all. Um, and even, uh, even when people do well and can tell truth from lies, um, it tends to not be that much higher than chance. It's only around like 54%. So it's better than guessing, right? It's better than just kind of flipping a coin to decide if somebody's telling the truth or not. Um, but not, not that much higher. Um, so in some ways, right, if we're, if we're taking people out of the courtroom or limiting that interaction, those behavioral cues probably aren't going to make that much of a difference because um, people aren't necessarily that great at deception detection anyways. Um, where it might be more relevant, though, is whenever you look at things like credibility assessments. So regardless of whether or not somebody is actually lying, it probably matters quite a bit whether or not jurors think that they're lying. Um, and we have seen uh, some evidence that shows um, that there are some more negative perceptions of people that are testifying maybe over video or um, like a, like a pre-recorded statement, for example. Um, but uh, it's hard to tell how that would actually affect a whole trial because um, while some studies do find maybe decreases in things like uh, uh, maybe how credible they are, or how likable they are, um, we don't always see a shift in uh, the actual likelihood to convict a defendant, for example. So while credibility judgments might be affected, um, it might not affect the end result of the trial that much. Um, and, you know, while we're focusing on witnesses here, um, I think that these same sorts of things are relevant to, you know, like you mentioned, like maybe judges or attorneys as well, the sort of like uh, behavior that they're enacting, right? Like maybe uh, how much they use their hands when they talk or where they're positioned in the courtroom or, you know, uh, that kind of sort of uh, approach or avoidant behavior in the courtroom, um, you know, could make them more or less likable to a jury. Um, and that kind of goes away maybe whenever you're doing it over video. Um, so I, I will say that while there is a little bit of evidence, I think that that says, um, that the effects of doing something virtually uh, might not be that, that detrimental to a fair trial, um, or at least in far as, you know, insofar as assessments of a witness. Um, there's a lot that we don't know. And a lot of, so for example, like a lot of the research on uh, recording witnesses, right? Um, that actually comes out of using, uh, using methodologies where you um, practice with child witnesses to pre-record a statement, uh, maybe because they have some limitation about appearing in trial in general. So there's not a ton of evidence with adults. 
Um, and again, there's not a ton of evidence that has to do with the sort of like uh, factors that we're considering now uh, adjusting for the pandemic. Like maybe multiple people are doing um, a virtual, you know, a virtual testimony or, uh, you know, people are wearing masks or, uh, you know, concerns over how close you are sitting to the person next to you or those sorts of factors. Great. Thank you. So, Denise, we've had at least a few months of experimenting with virtual hearing. So what should our big takeaways be when it comes to moving forward and trying to um, at least improve the system if we're going to keep using it? Right, right. Um, so an important point that we are hoping to make in this paper is that while the experiment has been going on for months now, like Will said, it's, it's been going on largely unobserved. Um, we have little knowledge of the results on a large scale. There are anecdotal accounts from jurisdictions across the country um, with some people appearing to be happy about the results and some not so much. Um, and I should also mention that as Professor Metzger points out in her article, um, virtual hearings are not new. They've been used for quite some time in rural and urban settings alike, but our knowledge of them remains quite limited. Um, virtual hearings have had novel benefits though during the pandemic, allowing court procedures to continue and allowing people to be released from jail or prison even. Um, there are, they have potential benefits that could last beyond the pandemic, such as providing easier access to the courtroom, like um, if um, accommodations are made for defendants without access to technology, like I said. However, there are significant concerns about fairness, constitutional rights, transparency, transparency and coercion that haven't been adequately addressed. Um, and this has obviously been an extraordinary time, so it's understandable that data collection hasn't been highest priority for courts that are trying to adjust to the rapidly changing demands of the pandemic, but going forward, we'll definitely need to understand what exactly virtual courts are doing to protect constitutional rights, transparency, access, and fairness in order to be able to make any claims about whether the experiment has been successful. We also need data on outcomes of virtual hearings like failure to appear rates and bail amounts that are being set. The very limited existing research on this shows virtual courts may actually increase bail amounts and make private communication between attorneys and clients more public or difficult. So these questions are definitely pressing and urgent. Um, but in the end, as with any technology, the effects of virtual hearings will depend on exactly how they're being used and which goals are prioritized. Um, virtual courts may be desirable for cost savings and efficiency, but this might also cause a trade-off that might be unfair to defendants. Um, so we really need to ensure that um, efficiency uh, isn't causing constitutional rights and fairness to be compromised. Great. Well, thank you so much, Will and Denise. Pam, I'm so excited to have a chance to chat with you about COVID-19 and the ruralization of U.S criminal court systems. And you know that a large part of my own research interest focuses on rural criminal legal systems. So I'm always super excited to talk about this with you. And I'm always really grateful to see the work that the Decent Criminal Justice Reform Center is putting out in that area. Um, so there really isn't that much focus still on rural criminal legal systems. So I would really love it if you could just tell us more about what the Decent Center even does in that arena, just so that everyone gets a little more familiar with it. I'm such a fan of its work. Well, thank you, Maybelle. And it's a, it's a mutual admiration site because we have really enjoyed society, society, a mutual admiration society, because we've <laughs> really enjoyed having you come um, to our rural events and you've added so much with your scholarship to the conversation. Um, at the Decent Center, what we really focus on are three areas. We, we do 
public defender services and public defender systems from top to bottom. We look at questions about prosecutorial discretion, particularly in the charging space. But as you point out, rural criminal justice systems and criminal legal questions are a big part of our portfolio. Um, and what we do, we really, we're in three ways that we do that work. The first way is we've served as, I think, really a, a clearinghouse or maybe a hub for people who think about and care about rural criminal legal systems, including practitioners. Um, we take a lot of our cues and a lot of our direction from a a stakeholder group that works with us, is in touch with us. You've been to a couple of our rural summits, so you know that we, we have a really active, engaged community of practitioners who range from law enforcement officers, um, judges, prosecutors, defenders, correction staff. We have a head of a state parole and pardon board um, to people who are justice involved. So we feel like we, we serve a very valuable function simply in identifying um, that these rural legal systems exist, that they share common um, experiences, both challenges and, and opportunities, and that there should be a forum to talk about them. Uh, the second thing we do is we are doing research in these rural spaces. We're doing research into the right to counsel in rural communities, particularly in Texas right now, but um, have other projects that we're hoping to get going in Utah, Kansas, uh, may have to trot out to Arizona, who knows. Um, but we have we have a number of research projects exploring, um, in particular, what the delivery of, of Sixth Amendment services looks like in rural communities. And then the last place is, is we really are trying to think seriously, and this is the answer to the short question that you asked me that I'm giving a very long answer to, which is what, it, what, what are these rural criminal justice systems? And we're trying to develop a conceptual spatial framework for thinking about what makes a system. And in that context, we've actually expanded our work, and we no longer technically talk about it as rural. We talk about it as STAR, small, tribal, and rural. Um, there wasn't space in the symposium issue for us to kind of embrace the full range of, of that moniker because tribal communities have their own very unique and very challenging uh, issues when it comes to distance and space and COVID. But our view has been that there's just not a conceptual framework for thinking about or talking about rurality. So we define a star system, whether it's rural or small town or, or tribal, as one that has three criteria um, that affect its practice. Uh, their distance, scale, and scarcity. When we talk about distance, we mean geographic isolation, um, such that um, local participants aren't able to take advantage of urban resources or resources that might be available in a micrometro nearby area. When we talk about scale, we mean small-scale, low-volume systems, where caseload volumes are too small to independently support those kinds of resources in the local community. And lastly, when we talk about scarcity here, we really mean professional scarcity. Um, most generally at the Decent Center, we focus on legal professional scarcity, but it's also a phenomenon with respect to corrections, reentry, um, criminal-adjacent services like substance use disorder treatment, um, policing, and so we look at professional scarcity, and we think about systems that struggle with some combination of those characteristics. Fantastic. So, you know, it's, it's really, it's always so hard. No, but seriously, it's always so hard to figure out how do I even conceive of what rurality is or what rural means um, to people who aren't really familiar with studying that space. And, you know, it, it's certainly not helped by the fact that we don't really have any really good definitions from, you know, the census board or anything like that. You know, rurality or the rural has always been defined in the negative rather than right. actually coming up with some metrics or anything like that. And, um, you know, it's interesting because 
because from what I understand, it, it seems like the census is finally getting on board with trying to figure out, okay, let's figure out some metrics and try to define it. So it'll be really interesting to see, I think, what they come up with, especially given that you've, you've done so much work in trying to um, reconceive the notion that we're thinking about in this sort of star community sort of um, lens. Um, but, you know, I think what's really interesting when we talk about rurality and rural criminal legal systems in particular is that I, I feel like sometimes when you watch TV or you read the news or something like that, um, oftentimes you'll see rurality sort of denigrated mm -hmm. and you'll see it discounted and you'll see it being viewed as something unsophisticated or bad or sort of, oh, you're a rural practitioner. It's incredibly an elite of you or something mm -hmm. like that, um, which I, you know, we both understand is you know, really absurd. Um, but I think we know this has led to this failure of studying rural criminal legal systems and in, in some of the things that they even get right, because, you know, it's not, I think lots of folks assume that everything must be wrong. Everything must always be in shambles. Everyone must not know what they're doing. And that's not true. Um, and there's this really serious failure in learning from them. So what do you think that the criminal legal system could have to teach us? You know, you were mentioning spatial, you know, distance and everything that really bears a lot on rural criminal legal systems. Um, what does it have to, what does it have to teach us in this sort of COVID moment with regard to um, how we use space or how we operate our courts or how we even practice? Sure. Well, let me just begin by saying that, that I would be remiss if, if and, and Greg, I know concurs with me on this, um, if we didn't acknowledge the enormous toll that COVID has taken on rural communities. Um, that toll is far too vast to be compressed into a three or 4,000 word online essay. Um, but, you know, medical scarcity alone in, in rural communities has been devastating. Um, we're now starting to see that bleed into urban communities as their hospitals are filling with rural patients and they are having to figure out how they allocate space. Um, the lack of medical resources, um, the lack of communication often between urban centers and nearby rural neighbors about what is available for healthcare has been devastating. And so I just want to begin by acknowledging that. But and I thought that the illness didn't exist in the rural space. Right, Pam. right. It doesn't. It doesn't. Not at all. If you don't, you know, if you don't test for it, Maybelle, the numbers will not go up. Ah. Um, that's the way this works. Um, and, and it's certainly true that we have seen in the way that Sharon was describing, right, this enormous um, explosion of COVID-19 in rural jails that often only gets caught um, once it's exploded, right, because mm -hmm. testing isn't available and all of the other things that, that we know about jails. And Greg probably has some more to say about that. But, but I think that, that what we wanted in this essay to try and do would be to turn it on its head and say, look, if, if we don't care enough about our rural neighbors to think about and invest in their justice systems because it's the right thing to do, then maybe we care enough because they have something to teach us. And we've known for a long time at the Decent Center that, that our criminal justice data is um, not just deeply imperfect, but, but wildly incomplete. I mean, if you look at the data sets we all rely on, what are they? They're the 75 largest urban counties, whoopee, right? It says nothing about the way criminal justice is practiced. The criminal legal system operates in most of America. It just doesn't. So we began to think about what incentives are there for rural communities to, to, to be part of the conversation 
such that urban and suburban communities want to want to have the conversation? How do you get urban and suburban communities to buy in, particularly when the tra tra trajectory has been to export your incarcerated populations to rural communities mm -hmm. um, and then and then move on? And so we began to notice early in the pandemic when we were doing some um, virtual roundtables that it was the rural practitioners, um, rural prosecutors and rural defense attorneys who were talking to us about what works in video. And not just talking to us about what works, but um, really articulating some of the things that Will and, and Denise have mentioned, which is talking about some of the challenges in figuring out what's the right procedure for video, what has to be done in person, when do you have to earn relationship by getting in your car and driving versus when you can default to video. And it really just made us realize how profoundly ignorant we are about what works because there've been people using these systems for years and we've never bothered to act. So we tried to take a look in our essay at, at what it is that rural systems have done and where we might find some evidence um, that they do a little better or at least do differently than urban systems. Um, one has absolutely been in physical adaptation to distance and that's why we focused there. Um, it's really remarkable, in fact, how quickly some rural communities figured out where they could go for alternate court spaces. You know, we mentioned a middle school um, that became the site of one of the first trial, jury trials in Montana, um, when big cities were still scrambling, trying to figure out where they could borrow a courthouse. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe that's because rural communities are, are leaner, they're nimbler, they move faster, or maybe it's because their social capital in the relationships between rural legal system stakeholders and their communities that enables them to take better advantage, right? To, to engage more with the kinds of facilities, for example, like a movie theater or a school that would let you hold a jury trial in a pandemic. The problem is we don't know because no one ever bothered to ask. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that point that you make with regard to the fact that it seems like a lot of Urban dwellers seem very comfortable with exporting, um, you know, the entire population of incarcerated people to the rural reaches of the United States. Um, I've always found incredibly infuriating. And, you know, you mentioned that Greg might have something to add with regard to um, what's going on in those um, in those rural carceral institutions with regard to um, COVID spread. I imagine that there also must be a link between um, sometimes bouncing around some of the population from one jail or prison to another or something like that. So I'm wondering, Greg, if you could maybe fill in some of that data for us or describe what's going on in those rural spaces. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks so much for the opportunity to do so. One of the things that we found really interesting, uh, we didn't have the chance to include it in the paper, but we just found it fascinating is the realization using um, data from the public safety lab. Um, they were uh, pulling data from hundreds of, of different uh, jail sources from all over the country, some in urban areas, some in rural areas, some in um, areas that really fall in between um, those on the spectrum. And what we, we found was that in the, well, really across the board, actually, um, all jail populations saw a pretty steep decline in April and May. Um, they went down very, very quickly. Uh, and the percent decline is very similar across all different types of counties, whether urban or rural. What we found really interesting is that uh, urban counties uh, bounced back rather rather quickly, um, really by July, by August, and certainly by September. Um, not only were jail population numbers back to where they were prior to the pandemic, they were actually higher than they ever had been 
uh, during the pandemic. While rural areas were completely the opposite. They remained quite low, um, often 30, 40, uh, 50, or even 60% lower than they were at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, now, what's really interesting is in the smallest counties, the most rural counties, you actually see a reverse in the trend back towards what uh, it looks like in, in urban counties where um, there was the same decline in jail populations, but then there was the largest increase from before uh, the, the pandemic. And so, you know, we're, we're still working on, on trying to understand, you know, where do these numbers come from? You know, what what causes this and, and why are these different uh, counties responding differently? But we found it really fascinating uh, to realize that, that there were such, such wide differences between the two. Greg, can I ask you to tell, talk a little bit about Grady as well, about kind of the interconnectedness piece that we've been thinking about? Yeah, absolutely. One of the, um, one of the county jails that's, that's really gotten in the news recently um, has been uh, the Grady County Jail, which is operated essentially as a, a conduit for different urban centers to uh, pull their their defendants, um, you know, really back and forth between the system. So um, someone's moving from Oklahoma City to, to Dallas, for example, um, they might move through Grady County. And what's happening is uh, again and again, Grady County is at least anecdotally being linked to uh, disease spread, right? It's, it's acting as a disease vector. Uh, and what we're realizing uh, because of the pandemic is that so many of these rural communities are exporting, or excuse me, importing uh, defendants uh, from these urban centers and then rerouting them to, to other urban centers that they're, they're really acting as a, as a conduit for not just COVID-19, but for um, other viruses as well. And other, um, you know, really any type of uh, condition or behavior that could be spread can be spread uh, through these rural communities. And so, you know, this just goes back to, to the point that it's so important to study the rural communities, not only because it's the right thing to do, the just thing to do and the fair thing to do, but also because everything that happens in these rural communities is deeply intertwined with what's going on in the urban centers. Well, thank you so much, Greg. And thank you so much, Pam. This was so great to hear more about what's going on in the rural space in the United States with regard to COVID-19 and rural criminal legal systems. Um, but you know, I appreciated this amazing discussion about um, about COVID in the courts with Will and Denise and Pam and Greg. So thank you all four of you for joining us. This was great. Yeah.